It is just after 7pm on 21st of December 1908, on sleepy, quiet West Princess Street. You can faintly smell the gas lamps as the cold nips at your fingers. There isn't much to mark out number 15 as being anything other than a well-to-do home in Glasgow's creeping expansion west. That being said, it's the only one that you can hear screaming coming from an upstairs window. It's the longest day of the year, dark and cold, just a few days before Christmas, and Miss Marion Gilchrist has sent her servant and companion Helen Lambie out to buy an evening paper. She does that every day, there's nothing unusual about it, but when Helen returns, she finds their downstairs neighbour Mr Adams standing in the close. Mr Adams never visits, something must be wrong. He says that he heard banging coming from Miss Gilchrist's flat. They climb the stairs in a hurry, their well-shod footsteps echoing on the stone steps, and turn the key in the lock. As they nervously push open the door, a man rushes out of the bedroom, bustles past them, and stomps slowly down the stairs before the pair can do anything about it. The feeling of dread hangs in the air. Neither of them have seen the man anywhere before. It's a bit late for a tradesman, and Helen would have been the one to organise that anyway. And let's be perfectly frank, Miss Gilchrist isn't in the habit of having gentlemen callers pop out of her bedroom, since she's an octogenarian and, you know, it's 1908. They tentatively open the dining room door, where Adams had heard all the commotion, and Helen's scream pierces the night air as she finds her employer, her friend, lying in a pool of her own blood, a rug pulled over her head to hide the evidence of a vicious attack. This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. There's a little girl outside that the man almost steamrollers as he hurries off into the winter gloom. When the police are called, she is unable to give them a description. Or at least not a description that matches what Helen and Mr Adams have said. They tell the police that the man is... Between 25 and 30, 5 feet 8 or 9 inches tall, slim, dark-haired, clean-shaven and wearing a light grey overcoat and a cloth cap. That doesn't really narrow it down much among the thousands of individuals going about their business in Glasgow that night. But there you go. The police search the flat, and apart from the fact that there's a corpse in the dining room, and that a box of Miss Gilchrist's private papers have been forced open, and its contents scattered to the four winds, very little has been taken. If this was a robbery, it was certainly no smash-and-grab job. Jewels worth thousands were left on a nearby dressing table. And in fact, only one item, a diamond-encrusted crescent-shaped brooch, was taken. Apparently, she'd been wearing it at the time. And since this is a fantastical tale of true crime, I suppose I have to say the line. The police are baffled. From the foregoing examination, we are of the opinion that the cause of death of the said Marion Gilchrist was extensive wounds and fractures of bones of face and skull, 
already described, and fractures of breastbone and ribs, together with shock and bleeding therefrom, that the said injuries were produced by forcible contact with a blunt weapon, and that the violence was applied with considerable force. These are testified on soul and conscience, John Glaster, MD, etc., and Hugh Galt, BSC, MD, etc. The opinion of the doctors who examined the body of Marion Gilchrist were clear that the force applied had been violent. She had been beaten, rather than merely struck, with what was thought to have been a chair. It wouldn't have taken much for an elderly woman to be knocked down, or out. The intent had been, for whatever reason, to kill. The police had no leads, until they got wind of a pawn ticket. A man had been trying to sell a ticket for a gold brooch, inlaid with diamonds. The same one that had been pinned to marrying Gilchrist's chest when she was murdered? Well, the police were sure of it. They rushed to arrest him, a German called Oscar Josef Leschziner, known around Glasgow as Oscar Slater. He was a Jewish immigrant and had arrived in the city about a month before the murder setting himself up as a dentist and precious gem dealer. And when I say setting himself up, I mean he wasn't either of those things, but that's what he told people. In actual fact, he was a small-time hustler, a regular in the billiard halls and clubs around India Street. The kind of guy that bets you he can down a pint without touching the glass, and then wins 20 quid off you on some infuriating technicality. He was a pretty unassuming guy, all things considered. Slightly taller than average, dark hair, deep-chested, short black moustache. Wait a second. 5 feet 8 or 9 inches tall, slim, dark-haired, clean-shaven, and wearing a light grey well, coat. Well, close enough, said the police. On Christmas Day 1908, they issue a warrant for the arrest of Oscar Slater, and then find out that he's already left for Liverpool for passage to New York aboard the Lusitania. The police finally got hold of the pawnbroker and were able to retrieve the brooch that had been taken from the body of Marion Gilchrist. Or at least the brooch that they claimed had been taken from the body of Marion Gilchrist. You might say that a crescent-shaped brooch with one row of diamonds looks different to one with three rows of diamonds, but what are you, some kind of jewellery expert? person with eyes, someone who is able to hear a description and make a distinction between two completely different items. Slater arrives in New York, into the friendly embrace of the New York City Police Department, and a detective, along with the three witnesses, leave on a ship bound for America to identify the culprit. At this point, you've probably worked out that Oscar Slater being a Jewish-German immigrant with no established or at least provable link to the crime, wasn't guilty of finagling his way into marrying Gilchrist's flat and battening her to death with a chair. In fact, your thoughts have probably turned to who did kill her. But we'll get to that. You can now rate us on Spotify and completely control whether I have a good day or a bad day. If you listen on the app, then look for the wee star icon underneath the follow button and give us five.
back to the show. Detective Inspector Piper of the Glasgow City Police leads the three witnesses into a room where a lineup has been assembled. Both Miss Lambie and Miss Barrowman, the young messenger in the street, immediately identify the man they saw leaving the flat that night. Mr Adams can't say for certain he surely resembles the man, but not enough for him to identify positively. Of course, Detective Inspector Piper had already let Lambie and Barrowman see Oscar Slater on their way into the police station. Not that something like that could possibly influence them after travelling thousands of miles across the ocean to identify a murderer. Slater could have resisted extradition, and given what's about to happen to him in the High Court, maybe he should have. But he was insistent on clearing his name. Surely all of this was a misunderstanding that could be cleared up. At the trial, it became immediately clear that that wasn't going to be an option. The whole thing was built around him being a gambler, a swindler, a man of ill repute and poor moral standing. His alibi was never mentioned in court, the witness Adams was never called to testify and the pawn ticket which had put him front and centre in the police's mind was for weeks before the murder, and for a different brooch. As the jury retired to deliberate on the particulars of the case, they were directed by the judge in his summing up. The Lord Advocate found on the prisoner's admittedly abandoned character as a point in support of the Crown. He's entitled to do so because a man of that kind has not the presumption of innocence in his favour, which is a form in the case of every man, but a reality in the case of the ordinary man. Not only is every man presumed to be innocent, but the ordinary man in a case of brutal ferocity like the present has a strong presumption in his favour. In addition, a man with the prisoner's sinister record may be capable of exhibiting a callous behaviour even immediately after committing a murder. And then when? After an hour's deliberation, the jury filed back again into court to give their verdict. A slight flush appeared on Slater's hitherto impassive countenance, which immediately gave place to deathly pallor. The jury found the prisoner guilty. Rising immediately from his seat with a stunned look, the prisoner cried, My lord, will you allow me to speak? The judge, sit down just now. Then elapsed a long, tense interval, during which the sentence was being recorded. Slater showed signs of the deepest emotion. He rocked to and fro in his seat. His mouth twitched. He cast his eye now to the roof and then to the floor. He sank down in his seat and pulled himself up again, and a deadly pallor spread across his face. My lord, my father and mother, he broke out through sobs and with a German accent that made his words hardly distinguishable. He was understood to say that he had not been allowed to give his own account to the jury, and that they had convicted an innocent man. The Umpire Newspaper, Sunday 9th of May, 1909. In May 1909, Oscar Slater was found guilty of the murder of Marion Gilchrist and sentenced to death. Luckily for Oscar, I guess you could argue, his sentence was commuted to hard labour for life in Peterhead Prison. It is 1927. Oscar Slater has been locked up in Peterhead for 18 and a half years. 
He's gone from a vivacious gambler in his late thirties, with a dashing moustache and a glint in his eye, to a convict, clean-shaven with a look of dread in his eye, to an old man, grey around the temples with a bit of a distant look, as he sits next to his friend, Rabbi E.P. Phillips, who's taken him into his care since his release. He's free at last. Or is he? The media are everywhere. Every time he steps outside to get a breath of fresh air or even open a window, there they are, snapping away, screaming questions in his face. How do you feel about being in prison so long for a crime you didn't commit, Mr. Slater? Have you spoken to Mr. Conan Doyle? Do you bear any grudges, Mr. Slater? Arthur Conan Doyle had been among his biggest advocates during his time breaking rocks in the cold winters. The author of Sherlock Holmes had smelt a rat and had written extensively about the case in an attempt to win an appeal or a retrial or to overturn the verdict or something, anything. Conan Doyle wrote a book 15 years before, but it had been another book written by a journalist called William Park, no relation as far as I know, that had brought him to the forefront of the public consciousness again. Park's new evidence brought a fresh perspective to the case and cast doubt on the supposed facts. The theory was the one which had been held by Detective John Trench, who had re-examined the case just before the outbreak of the First World War. He had found at best wholesale incompetence in the investigation, and at worst, a whole nest of bed coppers. Trench's investigation had found that this was a case of family larceny that wouldn't seem out of place in a Sherlock Holmes novel. Not only had Marion Gilchrist let the man in, she knew him, and if she knew him, then Helen Lambie knew him, and since Miss Gilchrist's niece, Margaret Birrell, had told him that the maid had come to her house on the night of the murder in floods of tears, claiming that she had recognised the man as the mysterious character, referred to in the official documents only as A.B. For his diligence, Trench was booted out of the police force. The theory was that the man who had entered the home that night was looking for a document, probably her will. He hadn't intended to kill her but she hit her head on the coal box following an altercation. He didn't have any choice but to finish her off since she could easily identify him. The book caused an uproar, which saw Slater released on license not pardoned or exonerated, strictly speaking, as the appeals process found that the instructions given by the judge to the jury were prejudicial, meaning that he was acquitted on a point of law. If they never said he was innocent, then they never had to go after Marion Gilchrist's real killer. And that's the tragedy of this whole case. Not only that Oscar Slater spent nearly 20 years behind bars for something he didn't do, but the Marion Gilchrist the woman who lost her life, never saw justice for the crime committed against her. No one was ever convicted, but in Thomas Tuffle's Oscar Slater The Mystery Solved, released in 1993, the murderer is named as Wingate Birrell, the secret fiancé of Helen Lambie, a nephew of Marion Gilchrist. Another man, Dr Francis Charteris, was also in the flat at the time, He's the one who was going through the papers. They all had claims to Miss Gilchrist's fortune, but she hated both sides of the family, so she was never going to give it up to them. 
The Charterises were a well-known family, and one of the brothers was friends with the Lord Advocate, who would, in 1909, lead the prosecution against Oscar Slater, a man who had never even laid eyes on his supposed victim. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. The music for every episode of Scotland is by our very own troublemaker, Mitch Bain. You can check out more of his work at mitchbain.bequiet.media. Additional voices in this episode were by David Allen and Mitch Bain. Scotland is supported by listeners like you on Patreon. You can get loads more from us for as little as £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash Scotland podcast. You can find out more about the show and read transcripts on our website, scotlandpodcast.net, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram too. Find us by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Thanks for listening. Look after each other. We'll see you next time.